Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Everywhere you look, it seems, you see more land covered by solar panels. In fact, the Energy Department estimates some 4,000 large solar projects are underway in the U.S., now, thanks to Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and the U.S. Geological Survey, solar watchers can access a database of these projects. It shows their size, location, and other details. For the whys and hows of this project, we turn to the director of the Energy Department's Solar Energy Technology Office, CETO, Becca Jones-Albertus. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. Tell us, first of all, the scope of what's going on in the country. Who's building these things? What purpose do they serve? And where are they in general? Yes, it's an incredibly exciting time for solar in this country. Uh, Solar installations are just taking off. Ten years ago, we only had a couple hundred large-scale solar installations, and solar was still a a tiny share of our electricity supply, and it's been growing rapidly over the last decade. And now we have uh, solar generating 5% of our electricity, and almost each year it's it's getting larger. A lot of that, about two-thirds, is supplied by large-scale solar power plants, which we now have 4,000 of in this country. And those are plants that are at least uh, a megawatt in size, uh, which is about five acres of land or larger. They can be much larger. They can be a hundred times that large or they can be smaller. So there's a diversity out there of, of what you can see from things that are just a you know a few acres to things that are hundreds of acres that still count as a large-scale solar power plant. And are these being mostly constructed by privately held utilities or by, I guess, maybe military could be building them for its purposes? Who's actually behind all of these projects? These projects are being developed by developer companies who are typically privately held. They can also be working closely with utilities or utilities themselves can be developing projects. Uh, there's a diversity among these uh, 4,000 projects out there of how they're developed, but they're developed uh, typically by, by different companies and then installed by companies that do engineering and, and installation. And they can have a diversity of, of owners as well, who own the projects and or get the power from them. And just out of curiosity, does anybody ever question whether this is the best way to consume beautiful landscapes and deserts and and grassy glens by covering them with solar panels and fencing them in? There certainly are parts of the country that have been concerned about what it means to uh, deploy solar on those lands. Uh, But for some perspective, the Biden-Harris administration has a goal of uh, having a completely clean electricity supply by 2035. Doing that would need about 6 million acres of land for solar, and that's about a third of a percent of all the land in this country. So, you know, 6 million acres is is certainly a significant amount of land, but I do think that, that sometimes people think those numbers are even larger. So, again, we're talking about about a third of a percent of, of land for solar. And again, just out of curiosity, from a technical standpoint, are developments happening in these square mirrored types of panels such that maybe... It would take one acre at some point to generate the power that two acres would require, you know, 10 years ago. Yes, efficiencies of the panels have been going up steadily every year. And so it is taking uh, less land than it used to to generate the same amount of power. And just again, before we get to the database itself that we're talking about, 
besides the panels, there is other pieces of infrastructure that have to accompany these wiring, and I guess there's some electronic control rooms or a server farm or something that goes with them. So the panels are held up by structural supports. Um, typically, we call them trackers. They're um, largely made of stainless steel, and they move the panels um, throughout the day. Not all large plants um, have panels that move, but most do. Say so move as the sun moves throughout the sky to maximize the energy production. And then there are also power electronics that go with these systems. So solar panels generate direct current electricity and our power grid runs off of alternating current. So there's power electronics that, that change that um, power into what the grid is using and then typically put that power that's generated by the sun and the solar panels onto the grid. All right. We're speaking with Becca Jones-Albertus, director of the Solar Energy Technologies Office, CETO at the Energy Department. And so with one of the big national laboratories and the United States Geological Survey, you've developed a database. Tell us about why you did that, what that entailed, and then we'll get into who might use it. Yeah, so we supported uh, DOE's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and partnered with uh, USGS to develop a map of all of the large-scale solar projects in this country. Um, so far, the map goes through 2021, but we're you know updating it with newer projects as well. We did this to provide more information for a broad set of users on the solar that is being developed uh, in this country. And it gives information about the type of facility it is, how large, how much land, other other attributes of these projects as well. So this is Anything from um, can be used by the public to understand trends in solar deployment and where solar's going. The solar industry can use it to think about new sites and doing their planning. Researchers can use it to really think about interactions between PV facilities and the natural environment or what benefits they're providing to host communities. And then federal and state agencies can use this data to look um, at a number of the different impacts that can come from having solar development, be that on wildlife or land use or grid resiliency. And so we're, we're providing a lot of information in the data set here that uh, we're hopeful will be useful to a broad array of stakeholders. And how do you know where they are to be counted? That was work that we did with USGS and um, also Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where they did geospatial mapping. They utilized other information that's collected by the Department of Energy's Energy Information um, Agency. And they did hands-on uh, work and research themselves, which included taking these these maps and actually drawing outlines of, of how large the plants are by hand. You can see a solar array of large scale of at least a megawatt, probably from an aircraft. Can you see them from space? Can satellites see them? Yes, yes. The satellite uh, software, you go on software platforms like Google Maps and zoom in, you can see solar plants. So they're jagged outlines, but of made up of many uniform rectangles, you might say. Yes, Yes. Almost like a mosaic, I suppose. The database, what form is it? Is it a pure database that you would need to develop applications to use, or is it something that someone could download or access and start looking? Yeah, you can go on the, the website itself, actually, and it has a great viewer system where you can zoom in and look at the systems themselves and hover over them and get all the information about the plants. So there's this great interactive viewer that uh, that anyone can take advantage of that's on the website today, as well as the underlying data that's accessible. And by the way, where is the biggest one located? I don't know. We can get back to you. The largest plants in general are in the southwest U.S. Where you have a lot of open land and where you have a lot of sunshine, 
I guess would be the obvious reasons there, huh? Yes. Yeah. By the way, whatever happened to the idea of where all of the mirrors point to one spot, which gets really hot and generates, is that still something that's done? Yes. That's called concentrating solar thermal power, and we're continuing to develop and advance that technology. One of the reasons that we're still excited about uh, concentrating solar power, or CSP, is that it's pretty easy to couple with storage. And so it can produce power not just when the sun is shining, um, but it can produce power at any time of day by um, being able to store that heat pretty efficiently. Uh, so the comparison is using solar panels coupled with batteries, but it turns out it's storing heat is, uh, is another interesting way to, to have storage and have power when the sun is not shining. And I'm imagining knowing where all of these projects lie could help in grid planning and redundancy planning and reliability planning because there is a physical proximity question that comes into play. Fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And what about the rooftops that people are, you know, all these hucksters calling everybody and they'll put a cover your roof and, you know, in my neighborhood there are, people are doing this left and right. Does that figure into the total solar equation that the country is pursuing? Yes. So there's about 4 million rooftops that have PV systems on them, and they uh, provide about 30% of the total power that um, the country produces from solar electricity. So they're a very important part. They are not mapped uh, in this database. This database is just the large scale PV systems, but those rooftop systems are another uh, very important source of uh, electricity for this country. And what about the wind turbine developments? Are you working on a database for them too? Yes, we uh, actually already had a uh, U.S. wind turbine database established that has locations and specifications for more than 70,000 wind turbines. So now we'll have the wind data and the solar data that are both accessible. So the big challenge now is making sure that the wind farms don't cast shadows on the solar farms. Becca Jones-Albertus is director of the Solar Energy Technologies Office, CETO, at the Energy Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It was great to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the database at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. You. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.